good to be together, plant family. Woke up this morning. Did you feel it when you woke up this morning? You realize like late summer is upon us, right? There's a little chill in the air. Stepped outside for a minute out on the front porch. The windows were open and I saw like, I think it was old man's daughter or old man Winter's four-year-old daughter was out there playing with a hula hoop. I said, go away. We don't want you yet. Not around here, right? But uh, you feel that chill in the air and just time keeps on marching. Just keeps on marching. It's funny, I turned 40 this year and just watching my kids grow up and the seasons just seem to fly by. And uh, you can get kind of depressed when you think about it. Um, but yet on the other hand, there's this part of me that's, um, I'm finding joy in growing older too. Maybe some of you can experience that same thing, right? You can find a little bit of joy in growing older. I think the reason why is because, you know, we spend so much of our lives uh, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? I mean, we've got this kingdom that we want to build for ourselves, right? It's like this unsinkable ship. We'll do whatever we can do to keep it afloat, right? And it's like this pleasure cruise that we, we want for our lives. And we're just sailing out into the open. And we're like this unsinkable Titanic. And we just spend our whole lives kind of decorating the ship and rearranging the chairs and you know, all that nasty stuff that happens down there on the lower level floors. We'll just keep that down there. We want to stay up here where the party is and all the celebration up on the upper decorated floors. And the older I get, I'm realizing like, you know what, this is great because... I can just let the Titanic sink. Just let it sink. I don't have to rearrange the deck chairs anymore. Um, God, you're doing something in my life and you're doing something in this community's life that now I get to be a part of. And this is, this is something we're celebrating. This is great. So, um, I don't know, I just share that this morning as a little tidbit. Um, just let it sink this week. Let it sink, right? God's doing something in your life. Um, find joy in that. You don't, have to, you don't have to wear yourself out rearranging the deck chairs. Uh, about a week and a half ago, I had the opportunity to go out to eat at one of my favorite restaurants in Ridgewood. It's Greek to me. Been there now a small handful of times. I'd never used the restroom there before. I'm glad that I went to use the restroom a week and a half ago. If you've ever been to It's Greek to me in Ridgewood, you go back to use the restroom, you go back, and the sign on the door actually said, not men, but God's. That's what it said, God's. I thought to myself, finally, <laughs> finally, someone acknowledges me for who I am, right? I put my hand on the door and I just, just breathe deep, you know? Like I, I'm walking into the room of God's. This is where I belong. It's Greek to me finally is recognizing who I am. And then I walk in and I'm like, you know, I hear that Tears for Fears song playing in my head, right? Everybody wants to... Like, that's the problem. Everybody wants to rule the world, right? All right, Kurt, you're not a god. It feels good for a minute, you know, but it's not who you are, you know, as much as you'd like to stay in that place. That's the problem. Everybody wants to rule the world, but as followers of Christ, we proclaim not everybody can rule the world, right? Because there's one who rules the world. There's one who rules the world. God has exalted Jesus as the anointed one who is the ruler over all. And so for us as Christians, we proclaim that. We bear witness to that with our lives. But how do we do that? How do we bear witness? How do we proclaim that Christ is the ruler? How do we bear witness to that without ourselves being the rulers? How do we say Christ holds all power without we ourselves exercising 
that power. And see, for for years, the church has struggled with this. And this is why a lot of people want nothing to do with the church, right? They're willing to, to interact with Jesus a little bit, but they don't want anything to do with the church because they realize that somehow the church really wants to have the power and really wants to control things. And so how do we bear witness to the fact that Christ is the all-powerful one who holds all power without we ourselves exercising power. Now, we could do what some churches do. For instance, I had read something uh, just a few days ago. Um, There's a church along Interstate 75 down in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And so they want to proclaim to everyone the thousands of cars that pass by there, the the lives that are inside those cars. They want to proclaim each and every day that Christ is the powerful one, the ruling one, right? And so they are erecting this 100 and I think it's 25 foot uh, cross on their grounds right there near the highway. And then there will be like two 50 feet crosses, one on either side. And it's a $700,000 project. All right, now, so you read different remarks to this. Of course, some people love it. You know, they think it's great that they get to bear witness that Christ is the powerful one, the ruling one. And then, of course, others look and say, $700,000? Really? Is that how we go about that? Um, see, this, so these are the, this is the tension that we find ourselves in, right? Um, I mean, it'd be great. You know, a lot of times we'll say, well, Christ is the all-powerful ruling one, and so let's, let's amass large groups of people. Um, and let's put on some loud rock and music and we can just let it be known. You know, those can be great environments, but is, is that the best way to bear witness to Christ being the ruling one? Or is there another way? Is there another way? How do we show people that there is one ruler? And unlike all of the rulers around us who often misuse their power, including ourselves, And when we decide that we're going to kind of be the gods and goddesses, as it's Greek to me would say, as I walk into the restroom, right? We have the tendency to mess things up. So how do we bear witness that, no, there's one ruler and he's good. He's a good ruler. He's a loving ruler. Um, He's not there to take from you, but he's there to give to you. So we want to open up God's word. As Rob reminded us last week, right? We reach inside the box that we've been given And God's word is there for us, right? And so we open it up and say, God, what do you have to say to us? And so this morning, uh, we're going to start by looking at Revelation chapter 1 before we move to an Old Testament story, an Old Testament narrative that we'll be looking at. I don't know if we have the text up on the screen, Matt. Do we have it? Fantastic. Um, Verse 9 of Revelation chapter 1. So this is the last book of the Bible. Um, Now, often when we turn to Revelation, uh, we tend to think of things like rapture and antichrist, end times, right? Funny thing is, is Revelation never mentions the word rapture, never mentions the word antichrist. Uh, In fact, if anything, Revelation really points to what it means to faithfully live and persevere as the people of God in the midst of this world. Revelation talks about the lion who became a lamb to exercise rule over the world. And so in Revelation chapter 1, there's one by the name of John. John was a follower of Jesus, and now he finds himself exiled onto the island of Patmos. And so in verse 9, John says, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. 
I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. And so sometimes, like last week, we realize that God speaks to us in that still, small, silent voice, right? And then at other times, boom, you know he's speaking to you. This was one of those moments. It said, John said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in these seven cities. Verse 12, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. That phrase right there, Son of Man, is a phrase that Daniel in the Old Testament would use. And so Daniel was kind of a prophetic writing, just like Revelation is kind of a prophetic, apocalyptic writing. It kind of pulls back the curtain and shows us the reality of what is beyond what we can just see. And so John here is pulling back the curtain and uncovering for us what really is. And standing in the middle of these lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were like were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. You say to yourself, this is amazing what John is saying. Notice the word like. It was like. It was like. And so John is struggling to even fall ruling one who even though John, here he is in the midst of suffering, in the midst of a broken world that he's living in, in the midst of all of the questions around him, John is pulling back the curtain and saying, ah, there's something that you need to understand about really what is even in the midst of all of the questions, in the midst of all the suffering, in the midst of all the brokenness. There's this one who's like all of these things. And John says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Maybe you've had the opportunity to see an eclipse of the sun, right? Where the moon kind of passes in front of a sun. One thing that you don't do is you don't look at that through a telescope or through binoculars, right? It can blind you. Something you don't want to do. And so you almost get the sense here that John, as he sees this vision of Jesus, and he he falls to the ground and he falls to the feet of Jesus as if he were dead. You can almost sense the fear and trembling that's in John. But what does Jesus say? Don't be afraid, John. Don't be afraid. You see, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive again, and I hold the keys of death in the grave. I hold the keys. The fact of the matter is, each and every one of us here know that there are things locked up inside of us. There is life locked up inside of us just waiting to come out. There are things that are dead inside of us. And Jesus is saying, I am the one who can bring those things to life. 
Remember some of us as children, we could wake up in the morning and we had this incredible joy, right? You'd get out of bed, you'd throw the covers off and you'd run downstairs and be like, what does today hold? I mean, you were ready to just step into it. Now if you're like me most days, you're like, oh, the alarm goes off, I don't want to get up. Oh, do I have to do this? I don't want to face this today. I don't want to face that today. Oh, I got to go see him, I got to go see her, Right? Like we've lost the joy of just living. Seems like the years of this life have just taken a toll on us and death has crept in. As kids, we didn't need very much to have a great day, right? I mean, you could just, with the simplest of things, you could just enjoy yourself and be fully present in the midst of a day. And now for many of us, we can't live our lives that way. There's things that we've got to have. There's things that we've got to acquire. There's things that we've got to add to the Titanic ship deck so that we can really make this life meaningful, right? It's like part of us has died. We used to have this amazing ability as children where we could just interact with anybody and everybody around us. It didn't matter if they were the ugliest person on the planet, right? We just saw people for who they were, just truly people. But now we have to be careful who's safe, who's not safe. I got to protect myself. I got to build walls around myself. And maybe for good reasons. A lot of us have experienced maybe being taken advantage of, right? A lot of us have done a great job of taking advantage of others. And so we've lost the ability to truly experience and interact with a community of people because we've just died to community around us. And so as a community, we proclaim, no, there's one ruler, there's one all-powerful one in this world, and his name is Jesus, and he holds the keys. There are things locked up inside of you. There are things that are dead inside of you, and Jesus has come to bring them to life. He's come to redeem them, and he looks at you, and he says, because of the blood that I've shed for you, I forgive you. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to remain in this place. You get to bear witness to the world around you that life can come out of death. Life can come out of death. So now let's tie this into prayer because that's really what we're talking about this summer, right? Is prayer. Prayer in a lot of ways is an opportunity for you and I to pray life into death. Prayer is an opportunity for us to say, I can join Christ in his rule without ruling the world. I can let him rule, but I'm going to tap into his rule through the tool of prayer that's been given to me. And so prayer, in a lot of ways, it starts as we even look at our own life and say, Jesus, there are things inside of me that are dead. There are things inside of me that are are locked up. I, I can't share. I can't give myself away. I can't truly live on mission with you because I'm still just building the kingdom of self. And as we begin to pray, as we begin to speak those things, Jesus meets us in that, in that place and he begins to unlock those things. He begins to bring life to those things. And I tell you, when you become that kind of person who now is experiencing that kind of life and joining God in his mission, crazy things are going to happen. And so we're going to look at someone from the Old Testament, 
okay, some 700 years before Jesus, who was this kind of individual. This guy was, he was alive for God. And, and when you allow Jesus to bring you this level of life, incredible things are going to happen. And so let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. Uh, 1 and 2 Kings is basically a, a history of um, all of these kings throughout the nation of Israel. And we're going to meet a man by the name of Elijah, all right? So follow along with me here. Some of you may know the name Elijah, um, a fiery figure in the Old Testament. Um, this guy actually, I mean, he was so alive that he didn't even really experience death. He was like just whisked away in this chariot of fire after, uh, after being alive for a while. He's kind of this uh, amazing guy in Jewish folklore still, right? He's there at the Passover table. He's there at every circumcision in some mysterious way. He's going to precede the Messiah before he comes back. I mean, Elijah was the man. This guy was fully alive to God. And so Elijah shows up on the scene in chapter 17 of 1 Kings. Now, Elijah, who was from Tishba and Gilead, told King Ahab, King Ahab is a bad dude. Things, things are getting bad in Israel at this point in history. I mean, the people just aren't getting it. And these are, these are the people of God, right? I mean, King Ahab is supposed to understand his nation's history, who this God is. And I mean, things now are at a point where Ahab, I mean, you talk about building a Titanic for yourself. This guy is just, he's just lost in his own world doing his own thing. And so Elijah shows up on the scene and says to King Ahab, these are the first words out of Elijah's mouth. This is not the way to make friends with the king. As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give word. Oh, hello, Elijah, right? Welcome to the scene. Um, this is not going to make Elijah a friend in the eyes of Ahab, all right? These are not the words that a king wants to hear, right? For an agrarian society to hear, there's not going to be any dew or rain for the next three years. It means you are in deep doo-doo. Like this, this is not going to be a good situation. So Elijah now, he's got to be protected, so the Lord said to Elijah, go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, because they just won the Super Bowl the year before, and they've got lots of money to buy extra food. <laughs> For I've commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him and camped beside Kareth Brook, east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and Ray Lewis met him there, and they did push-ups together, and he drank from the brook. But after a while, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the, la in the land. Thank you, God. Not only now did you send me where the ravens are, and I appreciate the food, but now I'm camping out here where there's like nothing here for me. There's not even water. The brook is drying up, right? And oftentimes when we find ourselves fully alive to God, being God's mouthpiece, being God's voice in the world, we find ourselves in situations like this. Really, God, is this how you make friends? Is this how you make friends, God? Then the Lord said to Elijah, go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. Now Sidon was up in the area of Phoenicia, which was like, it's, it's modern day Lebanon. So it's north of Israel. All right, so no longer now is he in the territory of Israel, but he's up in Phoenicia, modern day Lebanon. Um, I've instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to Zarephath. As he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks. Notice how God, you know, God doesn't allow Elijah to just kind of stay all by himself in the midst of a difficult time, right? But what does God say? No, I'm going to send you somewhere because God is the sending God, right? Especially people who are fully alive to God. The more alive you become to God, God in time, he's just going to send you to people. 
Say, I want you to go to that person. I want you to go to this place. Some of us have sensed that before, right? Um, and he has arrived at the gates of the village. He saw a widow gathering sticks and he asked her, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? As she was going to get it, he called to her, bring me a bite of bread too. Pause for a missional moment right here now, okay? So Elijah gets sent to this widow at Zarephath. Zarephath is not an area where God is known. God is not worshipped in this area. In the area of Phoenicia at this time, um, other gods known as the Baals would have been served and followed. And so this woman is most likely not a follower of God. And so Elijah is going missionally to this woman. And notice how Elijah arrives. He arrives in a place of need. He needs food. He needs water. Now, most of us, when we think about being sent to people, as we become more fully alive to God and want to proclaim that Christ is ruling, we think that we step into a situation and we're here to give you something, right? And sometimes God does call us to do that. But sometimes the best way to arrive into a situation is not, hey, I've got something that you need but I'm in need. My family and I, we just moved into a brand new neighborhood. We need community in that neighborhood. We need to get to know people. And so it's not like I'm showing up on my white horse here to meet all of their needs. But sometimes when we missionally arrive to a place, it's important for us to show that we are people of need too, right? We have a connection with people that way. Bring me a bite of bread too. But she said, I swear by the Lord, your God. I don't don't have a single piece of bread in the house. And I only have a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal. And then my son and I will die. That's a promising situation, right? I was just going to cook this last meal and then forget it. We're going to die. Some of us, I mean, we're in situations like that, Right? I mean, maybe it's not to this extent, but we know we're in situations where like, this is not a good situation. Maybe it's going on in your own heart right now. Maybe it's going on in your family and you're like, something here is about ready to die. Maybe it's in the life of a neighbor. I, I don't know what it is, but if you just open your eyes and look, these situations are all around us where it's like, this is just not a good situation. Death is, is present here. Death is at work. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, there will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. And so here's Elijah and what's he doing? He's speaking life in abundance into a situation of death and scarcity. People are scared to death in our world right now. They're scared to death that they're not going to have enough. They're scared to death that there are not enough resources around. We live in a narrative of fear because people live in a narrative of scarcity. And so Elijah is here and he's saying, no, 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 Don't, don't be afraid. God is going to provide. See, Elijah, he's he's alive to God. And so as we allow Christ to make us alive, we step into the world around us. We're like, there's enough. There's an abundance. God will provide. Elijah is a different kind of spokesman in the midst of the world. So she did as Elijah said, and she and Elijah and her son continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. Sometime later, the woman's son became sick. He grew worse and worse, and finally he died. 
Then she said to Elijah, O man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? Now, if I were Elijah, by this time in the story, I'm like, God, I'm out of here. I'm giving up. I'm trying. I'm trying. Honestly, if this is is what you're going to lead me to, I'm gone. I give up. This is where like, you just have to get blown away by Elijah's faith, by how alive he is to God. But Elijah replied, give me your son. And he took the child's body from her arms, carried him up the stairs to the room where he was staying and laid the body on his bed. Then Elijah cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, why have you brought tragedy to this widow who has opened her home to me, causing her son to die? And so here Elijah is, he's in the activity of prayer. He's speaking to God and he stretched himself out over the child three times. I'm just envisioning this in my mind. I almost get the chills as I think about this. And cried out to the Lord, Oh Lord, my God, please let this child's life return to him. Elijah cries out to God and the Lord heard Elijah's prayer. And the life of the child returned and he revived. Then Elijah brought him down from the upper room and gave him to his mother. Look, he said, your son is alive. Your son is alive, right? Because God holds the keys to everything that's dead, to everything that's dying, to everything that's locked up. God holds the keys. He's just giving them to us and saying, look, just ask me. Just pray. Just pray. Bear witness to the fact that I rule, that I'm in control. And you know what? You don't have to take the seat of rulership. You don't have to take the seat of power. You can just show people that I rule by the way that you pray. Then the woman told Elijah, now I know for sure that you are a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. Elijah didn't have to spend $700,000 to put up a 125-foot high cross. Elijah didn't have to go to some great lengths to make God known. Elijah just needed to be alive to God. Alive to the point that he wasn't fearful, that he didn't give up. That all he had was the power of prayer to pray life into a situation where death was present. Plant community. This is simply all that God is asking us to do as we step out into the world. Proclaim that there is life even in the midst of death. Proclaim that Jesus is alive and he holds the keys and he is able to bring to life that which has died. He is able to create something new out of that which appears nothing can be done with it including our own lives, right? This is what the church is all about. And so I ask all of us the question, I ask myself the question. Um, We do whatever we can do as a society to push death away, right? I mean, we build nursing homes and assisted living centers, just keep, keep it over there, right? Um, I had the opportunity to go to Eastern Christian Children's Retreat. Some of you might be familiar with that facility. Severely, severely handicapped children and adults. And I walked the halls. I was meeting with the director there and interacting with 
my heart broke just seeing the brokenness that was present in these lives. People who couldn't speak, people who can't even stand on their own, they can't feed themselves. And we keep them in a building over here because we we don't want to be faced with the reality of that. Some of us don't even want to face the death that's going on inside of our own hearts right now. Some of us don't want to face the reality of the death of broken relationships around us. Some of us don't want to face the the difficult situations that are present in some of our neighbors' lives because honestly, we just feel overwhelmed by it. We don't even know what to do if we were to step into a situation like that. We don't even know what we would do. And so we just push it away and we just pretend that it's not there. We like happy place Christianity, right? I love happy place Christianity. It's the place where I go to meet God and everything is great. Everything is rosy and people are smiling and we love being around those people. In fact, we'll often say, I just love being around this person because when I'm around this person, I sense Jesus. And we have to be careful when we say things like that because what about when I'm with this person over here and I feel completely overwhelmed because death and brokenness is so present? But yes, somehow Jesus is in the midst of that too. This is where Jesus wants to work. This is where Jesus calls us the church. Look at Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. And we're going to wrap up with this. Matthew chapter 16. And we're specifically going to look at verse 13. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus wants to take his church to places of death, to places of brokenness. Verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now there's that phrase, Son of Man, again, remember? We saw it in Revelation. John had a vision of one who was like a Son of Man. And so who do people say that the Son of Man is? So they're at the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now let's just pause here. Um, Before Caesarea Philippi became known as that, um, Herod the Great had a son by the name of Philip. And so Philip wanted to honor himself, but also the um, Roman Caesar. And so he changed the name of what the city was known as was Panius. Now, Panius was a city some 300 years before Jesus when Alexander the Great, right, the Greek ruler, was traveling through the world, conquering the the, the world. And so um, Panius was a Greek city. And so there were a lot of Greek things up in that city. And one of the things that was up there um, was a lot of um, worship of the gods. I have a picture here. Go ahead and bring up a picture of um, Caesarea Philippi. Well, this is Pan here. Now, Pan was the goat man god who was worshipped in the city of Panius. This was, this was a bad dude. Pan was the god of like the wilderness, of nature, uh, of the shepherds, of the pastures. Um, he's got his pan flute there that he would sit and blow. And, and um, Pan also was one of the fertility gods. And um, Pan, he was just a bad dude. People started to just engage in all kinds of crazy worship in the city of Panius what became known as Caesarea Philippi, because in the city of Caesarea Philippi, the next picture, that's the temple of Pan, the ruins that are there. And you see that big hole in a rock right there. So this was at the center of Caesarea Philippi. And so 
people believed that in that rock right there, there used to be a water and a spring that would flow out of that and would then feed um, the Jordan River, but that eventually dried up. But people believed that the Greek gods would go in there during the winter time, and that would become their abode. In fact, that place there was actually known as um, the Gates of Hades, the Gates of Hell, the Gates where these gods would go during the winter time, and they would kind of lodge in there, and they would do their mating rituals and that kind of stuff before they would come out in the springtime. And so Jesus is taking these good little Jewish boys on a field trip up to this place where you didn't go. You didn't go to a place like that if you were a good God-fearing Jew. That was a bad place. I mean, you are standing at the gates of Hades, the gates of hell. And so this is where Jesus takes his disciples. And what does he say then in verse 14? Well, they replied to his question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. This this exclamation that Peter gives that you are the Messiah, you are God's anointed one, you are the one through whom God is going to work. And Jesus then in verse 18 says, Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of Hades, all the power of hell, will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. And so a lot of people, you know, throughout the ages, we've been kind of arguing, well, okay, wait a minute. Jesus says, now that I say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. And so, like, is Jesus saying that, like, what's the rock? Is it Peter? Is it Peter's confession? Is it Jesus? Like, what is it? Is it this rock? Right? Is, is it the rock that's up there? Maybe it's a little bit of all of those things. But what Jesus is saying to us, notice, is, look, I am building a church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, gates don't move, Right? Have you ever seen a gate move? Unless the door opens, right? Gates are stationary, correct? Yeah? Head nod, right? You're with me. You're tracking, right? Gates are stationary. So if the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, what does it mean that the church is doing? If the gates aren't moving, what is the church doing? The church is moving, right? I heard someone say it. The church is on the move. And where is the church on the move to? The gates aren't going to prevail. Where, where are we going? To the what? To the gates, yes. To the gates. To the gates of Hades, to the gates of death, to the brokenness that's all around us. We're not afraid to face it. Church, we don't have to be afraid to face the things that are dead inside of us. We don't have to cover it up. We don't have to pretend that it's not there. We can open up our eyes and say, God, where is death at work in my neighborhood, in my family, in the places that I visit each and every day? And how can I bring life to these situations? Because Jesus, you are the ruling one and you hold the keys to all that is locked up. You hold the keys to death and you are the one who brings it to life. And so plant family, we become a family who is a praying family, praying life into situations of death.
We find something that's broken and dead. And just like Elijah, we prostrate ourselves on it and say, God, I believe that you can bring life into this situation in a way that I never can. I don't have to wait for my country to do it anymore. I don't have to wait for this person to do it anymore. I don't have to wait for my spouse to make it happen. I don't have to wait for my mom or dad to make it happen. God, you can do it. We prostrate ourselves over situations that are broken, over things that are lost, over things that are locked up. And we proclaim, Jesus, you hold the keys. You were dead, but you are the living one. So I don't know. I don't know what's lost in you right now. I don't know what's dead in your family right now. I don't know what kind of brokenness is around. I don't know what kind of gates you're standing at and you're looking and saying, I swear these are the gates of hell right before me and I'm scared to death. But we have the opportunity to pray life into all of that. And Jesus is going to do something amazing through it. So let's be people on mission this week, right? Let's be people on mission. Uncovering the brokenness. Looking for the dead things. And let's be people like Elijah who are praying life into that which is dead. Let's pray together, all right? God, thanks so much for your word that you give us. Thank you so much for these stories that aren't just... um, they're not just stories. They're our story. We live these things each and every day. We have a connection um, with Elijah. We have a connection with your disciples who you stood with there in Caesarea Philippi. And we're, just the, we're the next ones coming who just bear witness to the fact that Jesus is the all-powerful ruling one. So God, by the way that we pray life into death this week, Um, May we proclaim that Jesus is life to a dying and fearful world. Amen.